Welcome to Brandon Avat. Uh, today we are joined by Yolandi Kutsia, who teaches at uh, the University of the Northwest. Um, she got her PhD at the University of Johannesburg, and we are going to be talking about um, environmental philosophy. Uh, Yolandi, would you like to start with a thought experiment? Sure. Thank you, Mark, and thank you for having me. Um, so I thought I would tell you guys about an experience that I had at one of South Africa's um, national parks um, called the Kruger Park. And what happened is I was there um, teaching and we went with a group of students that there's a little university or little college um, in, in the Kruger. Um, and on one of the outings they took us with the students and the place they took us was the rubbish dump. So now this isn't exactly something you see as a tourist when you go into the park. So it's behind one of those little gates that says private property, no entry. So it's, it's not a place that, that, that tourists are allowed to go. Um, and when you go there, this is like a little commune where, um, you know, people who work there stay there. Um, there's not really much in terms of um, fencing. And then we, we arrived at this place that was, that had quite big fences around it, but this was the rubbish dump, right? So you could smell it quite a, quite a while away before you got there. And this for me was a very interesting experience, um, going to a place like the Kruger, where you can literally encounter the big five. You have these animals that are majestic and beautiful, and you, the only other sort of human element you see are other people in their cars. Um, but for the rest, it's, it's entirely, as we would like to think, natural. So then going to this rubbish dump was, was quite an interesting experience. And the one thing they told us is that every piece of trash that's generated in the Kruger stays in the Kruger. So every can of Coke, every packet of chips stays in the Kruger. And that's not generally something we'd like to think about as tourists when we go, even as a South African tourist going to South African parks, we don't like to think about the effects that we have on these places. So going into this place was really interesting because the one thing that's incredibly noticeable is the amount of wildlife that actually interact with this rubbish dump. So you would think that this would be, um, you know, a place that, that's dirty and animals stay away from it, but actually it drew the animals. So obviously a bit of food, there were tons of baboons, there were a lot of uh, marabou storks and a bunch of other animals. They went to the, we went to the sewage farm and what was really interesting about the sewage farm is that there were also, again, a lot of animals. There was a nice big crocodile chilling in the, in the one, one of the dams, lots of birds. The guy said the best place to look for birding, if you want to go birding in the Kruger, is to go to one of the sewage farms. Um, <laughs> apparently, it's just the best bird life is there. <laughs> but again, this is not a place that you exactly have access to as a tourist because it's behind sort of, not closed doors, but, but you know, a place where tourists aren't allowed. So what's quite interesting about this is it makes you think about what we think of as natural and, and how we come to, to value nature and the environment and, and what, we, what we think humanity's place in nature is. So Cronin famously said that, that we think of nature as a place where humans are not. But that then assumes also something about humanity and, and that we're perhaps not natural which, which is just simply not true. I mean, we're, we're also animals that have evolved in a certain way. So thinking about that and thinking about the way that, you know, there was the stark contrast between the wildlife and then this rubbish dump and the sewage farm that, you know, was just so man-made, so, so constructed, so artificial, you know, with Coke cans and, you know, you drove in and there was like, Literally, as you would imagine in a, in a normal rubbish dump, like broken dishwashers and 
broken plastic chairs and you know it's just this like strange and then there was like some bookies you know some impala grazing around and it's just for me such a stark sort of picture this this image of of this human trash with just smack bang in the middle of this incredibly natural wild environment so for me it brings up a lot of questions about wilderness about natural what's natural what's not natural and then human humanity's place in it so Yolandi, I, I love the thought experiment. Well, it's, it's a real story. Um, but I love it because, as you said, it raises a whole bunch of questions. And the first one, I think, which is very interesting is, well, what is nature? So this definition of nature um, as that where humans are not um, doesn't seem to work, right? Because where did we come from? You know, we, you know it's, it seems like we must have evolved from somewhere unless you take... I mean, is, is that view coming from like a, um, a quite a fundamentalist uh, Judeo-Christian position, uh, which is that kind of humans were created separate from nature? Um, would it require that? But, you know, on a kind of a more um, rationalist position, um, humanist position, humans evolved from, from nature, right? We, we evolved from apes, which, which evolved from, from further, further, further back and further back from all the way from amoeba. Um, so, okay, if we, if we put aside that view of nature, that, um, that, that we are separate from nature, um, then what is nature? What are the other accounts of nature that philosophers give? So I think you're absolutely right. Um, in, in my studies, this is something that I came to the conclusion that this idea of humanity as somehow separate from nature is um, exactly from this sort of Judeo-Christian um, history where where we were somehow given or created to be, you know, guardians of nature and therefore we're separate from it. Um, but we know that that's just factually not correct, right? We know that, like you said, we evolved from animals. Um, so we have to then consider what does natural mean? I think if you look at it, some of the more indigenous perspectives of, for example, the first people of North America, um, Australia, and even in Africa, indigenous perspectives, that separation between humanity and nature is just simply not there. Um, it, it becomes strange to speak about humans as not part of nature, as, as somehow distinct from it. Um, and I think that's, that's the perspectives that I started exploring is, is these, these perspectives that don't view the natural world as some sort of hierarchical uh, view where human, humans are at the top and somehow separate and the top of the food chain, but rather part of an interconnected web of life. So what I found is, is if you move away from the Western perspectives, um, and especially the more traditionally Western perspectives, and you, and you go towards some of the more indigenous perspectives, um, the African philosophy, the African environmentalism, you actually find, and interestingly enough, also the feminist perspectives that, that view humans and nature as much, much closer, much more interlinked. And obviously some of the Western philosophers I've always also picked up on it. Um, one really interesting article is by uh, uh, William Cronin, who's actually a historian, and he speaks about this idea about, you know, humans being, um, we think about nature as a place where humans are not, but it's just simply not true. And we see in a place like South Africa, we know in our history that humans for very long lived, and in many places still do, live inside nature, live in between animals, um, and there's no distinction. Um, so yeah, I think that's where, where some of the alternative perspectives come from, is from non-Western perspectives. So let me try and flesh out uh, a distinction of sorts. So the one might be that um, humans uh, tend to have personhood, 
So they have this ability to uh, be rational. Uh, they have a certain level of consciousness. So they might very well have, you know, a, a long a long evolutionary chain where they were once non-persons. So they can trace humanity back to to amoeba or to great apes or you know some other ancestor. Um, but now there is a distinction between uh, humans and and let's say and other animals. Um, that's quite sharp. And the other one might be to say that if we think about the things that humans make that are um, artificial, in other words, constructed, um, that this differs from what we find in nature. So um, nature is not, there's no intentional agent creating a mountain uh, or a river. You know, these things sort of spontaneously occur in nature. Um, there's no grand designer doing that stuff. Whereas if we think about architecture, you know, we very much have a planner. There's the creation of something. And that might be a good way of drawing the distinction between what occurs in nature and what is man-made. Yeah, and I think that is, um, I mean, for, that's an age-old question is like, what makes humans different from, from the rest of nature? And, and Darwin famously said that it's um, contrary to what was believed at the time. It's not a matter of, um, it's not a matter of category or it's not, it's not a matter of um, kind, but it's a matter of degree. Um, so yes, absolutely. We have um, certain certain things about ourselves that make us, um, you know, that we have that other animals don't have. We've got um, certain cognitive capacities that we have in more advanced levels that are, that even some of the higher higher animals. Um, but again, then there's animals have things that we don't have. If we had to judge it by speed or, or strength, we we would you know lose the battle. So I think what becomes interesting is if we if we speak about man-made um, or artificial or constructed we also have to think critically about what that means so Stephen Vogel in his, his books called thinking like a mall um, which is a really interesting book to read when we when we think about our artifacts as humans and roughly his argument throughout the book is something to the extent of well if weavers make nests and we think of the weaver nest as natural and if the beaver makes a dam and we think of the beaver dam as natural and if we think of humans as natural then our shopping malls our cars our buildings are also natural they're just like the weaver's nest and just like the beaver's dam slightly more complicated but at the end of the day what we create with our hands as natural entities are remain natural so I think, again, it goes back to this idea of whether animals, there's actually a difference between humans and animals. And, and someone like Stephen Vogel would argue there's not. It's a fascinating position because if you think about uh, the general view, if you go and tar over, um, let's say, a swamp, right? So you've got a swamp and you, you fill it in and you tar over it and you put a shopping mall and a parking lot. Um, the general view is that, well, you've destroyed nature, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and Vogel's view is that you haven't. Yes. So um, what what someone like Vogel would say, um, and, and there's quite a few positions that, that agree with them, is that there really isn't something like what, there's, there's no such thing as nature. Because if we want to argue that nature is something distinct or untouched by humans, then there's no nature left. Nature has died already when humans started doing stuff, right? Um, and even the deepest part of the ocean, the most, you know, remote part of the Arctic um, is touched by things like anthropogenic climate change. So that is human-caused climate change. That is even effect, even if a, a actual human has never set foot there, um, we've already changed the environment to such an extent that we, 
we've changed even the most remote parts. So if we want to say that, yeah, obviously the tar over the, the um, you know, piece of nature is, is an extreme example, but actually we've already changed everything. We've changed, we've touched everything as humans. So um, a lot of people would just argue there's no such thing as nature left, but perhaps there was never such a thing as nature. Nature is a concept, it's a, it's a human concept. It's, it's not something that exists independently of, it's, it's a value statement. It's, it's something that we give value, um, but it's not actually something that exists independently of humans at all. So I want to try and make sense then of, let's say the environmental activist who says we need to conserve nature. Um, there are certain um, animals that are majestic and we need to protect them and ensure that we don't intrude into their habitats. Uh, we need to create these reserves for them. Um, we need to modify our behavior for their sake. Um, is the view to say, well, no, that's all nonsense. Um, we're animals like them. Um, different animals tend to intrude on their environments in different ways all the time. You know, um, some, some saber-toothed tiger might work very well have eaten woolly mammoths out of existence. And that's just how it goes. And we're also animals. And if we happen to, you know, wipe out the zebras, so be it. We're all just part of nature and we owe no special obligations. Um, I think there, there is definitely positions that would support that. Um, I think that um, if we think about things like, like biodiversity, um, which is something that we, we often, the reason why we want to protect certain species or why we want to, we hold certain species in, in high regard, it's, it's usually because either they're cognitively quite complex, like the elephant, um, or they're on the brink of extinction, like the rhino. Um, or they're just particularly cute or pretty, right? I mean, that's also a reason that we often protect things. Um, and I think that, again, goes back to what we think of has value. Um, and something that we, we think of biodiversity as being something that is that's quite valuable. The more species there are in the world, the better. Or the more species there are in the ecosystem, the better. Um, but that's also taking a very micro, sort of very narrow view or a sliver of time. Species come in and out of existence all the time. Um, I think we just happen to be quite a parasitic species. Um, my own view is that that humanity as a species is actually a parasite because we're, we're ruining our hopes, right? And that's the definition of a parasite. Um, that doesn't mean the, that this, the host can't survive without us. And, and I'm pretty sure at some point, humans will also either evolve or die out given enough time, I'm sure that would eventually happen. Um, but yeah, so I think that, that we have to think about why we hold certain animals um, as valuable, why we, why we think it's important to save the rhino. Because let's face it, if the rhino dies out, it's not a particularly integral part of any ecosystem. Um, you know, why do, we, why do we value it? Because it's big and it's part of our landscape. And actually then, does it all not just come back to sentimentality? that we're just sentimental about things. But actually in the bigger scheme of things, in the big cogs that go, there's not really any reason to save any particular species because species come into existence and they go out of existence. It's just happening at a very rapid pace at the moment. So there's an accelerated extinction of species that I think worry a lot of people because like, for example, if the bees go extinct, we know that the many ecosystems collapse along with it. But, you know, if the rhino goes extinct, it's not really going to collapse any ecosystem. 
So it brings up some interesting cases. Um, in the 90s and the early 2000s, environmentalists were searching for an animal to become the face of uh, the global warming pandemic. Well, it's not a pandemic, but it's pandemic for animals, right? So the glo- I, 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 we're so stuck in COVID, I think about pandemics all the time. Uh, but the global warming kind of disaster. Uh, so they were searching for an animal that's being deeply affected by global warming. And they found some insects that were kind of going, going extinct. Um, and, you know, the, the change in temperature was just this huge problem for these insects. But when they polled people on whether they cared about these insects, they said, well, no, uh, we don't. Uh, and they, they tried a few different animals. They tried a certain type of bird. It was a particularly ugly kind of bird. Um, and so no one really paid attention. No one cared. Um, and then they found the polar bear, right? And the polar bear is like everything everyone wants in a majestic animal that's being affected by climate change. Um, and the idea was, well, you know, if the polar bear is going to be affected by climate change and the polar bear is going to go extinct, well, then that's terrible and we better do something about this, right? Nature is under threat. Um, it's just very interesting how, as humans, uh, we perceive the value of nature uh, relative to whether we like the animal. Uh, as you said, sentiment, right? Um, and, and that obviously can't reflect uh, like the metaphysics involved, right? So it can't be that animals are valuable only insofar as they're cute um, or fluffy or big or, you know, it, it, that can't be the value of an animal. Well, yes. And I think that, that again shows some inconsistency or some, we'd like to think we're very rational about these things, but often it does come down to just like, well, it's a cute animal. Um, I can give you two sort of short anecdotes to, to support that. The one is uh, one my supervisor told me, and he was quite involved with the, um, the elephants in the Kruger National Park. And, and back in the, the late 90s, early 2000s, when they were still culling the elephants in the Kruger, every time they would cull the elephants, there would be a huge hoo-ha. They would like, you know, the activists would be there, the animal rights activists would be, would be campaigning. Um, but then the, the, the ranger said, well, but they c- routinely cull other animals as well. And one animal that they often have to cull is the buffalo. Because um, they just, you know, also can be quite destructive and so on. And he says, never, ever once have anyone ever protested the culling of the buffalo. Because let's face it, the buffalo is a particularly unpleasant looking animal. And it's not particularly cute. And it's kind of very, you know, it's, it's, if you've ever encountered a buffalo, they're, they're not, you know, they're quite grumpy things. Um, and, and they're just not that cute or, or, it, or their capacities aren't that advanced like, like there is with, um, with elephants, for example. And the other thing is also that we tend to think about um, animals that are damaged or, or harmed or somehow brought close to extinction by, by things like climate change. But we also don't think about animals that thrive um, in spaces that are domesticated or built up or, you know, so I think something like that's very close to home for, for a lot of us living in Joburg is the park town prawn. And the park town prawn is notoriously well adapted to living in, in, an, in a built up environment, but no one, no one, you know, is very happy for the park town prawn or the huddy does who end up eating the park town prawns who also is a dime a dozen and they flourish in spaces where, where humans are. Um, and they flourish in built up spaces animals like like mice and rats who who you know often congregate where there's humans um we don't celebrate that but we 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 do worry about the the cute polar bear going going extinct um and sure there's a loss there but if we really start trying to unpack that loss 
is it a is it an inherent loss? I mean, it's always sad when when a being dies, but it is part of the 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 human, or it's part of the the natural cycle of things. Um, so, what is what is the harm being done? Right? Is the harm being done? Perhaps it's sad if the polar bear is emaciated and hungry and then dies out. Yeah, sure, there's some suffering there, and we want to avoid suffering generally. Um, but really, who's being harmed? What's being harmed by the death of something like a polar or the extinction of something like a polar bear? The seals are probably going to be very happy because they're not going to get eaten by, by polar bears. You know? So again, it becomes a question of, of what, whose interests or, or whose um, opinions or, or what reasons are we being or do we have for, for trying to save certain animals or save certain parts of the world? I mean, that's also another thing. We, we want to save all the beautiful parts of the world, but there's some really ugly parts in, in the natural world that no one cries about when there's a shopping mall that goes up there or if there's just some random fault that you know doesn't have anything particularly aesthetically pleasing about it. And the more I read about it, the more I think that it really does come down to sentimentality and, and aesthetics, really what's cute, what's fluffy, what's pretty. Because um, those tend to be the things that humans want to protect. And there doesn't seem to be a clear reason why. Yeah, that's a nice way of thinking about the problem. Because it strikes me that, as you say, you've got a couple of reasons. So the one is um, the animal for its own sake. So it seems like a bad thing happens when a, an animal suffers and dies for that animal. Okay. Um, the other one as you say, is how much humans value it. And we could value it for a, a set of arbitrary reasons in some ways, as you say. Um, so we happen to have a preference for, let's say, cute animals or big animals. Um, and so if, uh, you know, the tsetse fly or some rare kind of um, snail, you know, just disappears, we, we don't care about it at all because we don't value it. Although, you know, it may have some sort of interest in its own existence. Um, so, and that, that might be a bit arbitrary, but maybe there's an argument that there are some things that are objectively more beautiful and more valuable. So if we think about um, a museum that's on fire, um, you know, we might think that, you know, the, the, the works by great masters are important because they are beautiful. Um, and that the sort of um, stuff mass produced by, you know, um, some very poor artist, if that stuff goes, well, that's less bad. You know? um, the art itself has no, and no sentiment towards itself, but our conception of how important it is might play a role. Um, there might be certain things that we stop mourning. So something like, let's say, um, no one speaks Aramaic now and none of us feel bad about the fact that no one speaks Aramaic. Um, but there are other kinds of languages that let's say are on the verge of extinction. Uh, and we might think that maybe they have some kind of aesthetic value, that there's something about protecting the diversity of that. There are languages that were driven into extinction and then resurrected. So like, um, uh, Hebrew is an interesting example of a language that was kind of not spoken and then resurrected by uh, by modern Israelis um, simultaneously with Yiddish being eradicated and then later resurrected. And some people derive a joy from the fact that there's this variety of languages, even though the language itself, you know, has no value to itself. It's only as perceived by, by us. Um, so it seems like there are different ways in which we could value things. But I think what you point out is that a lot of it might be a little bit arbitrary, you know? I think that's exactly it. And I think um, that's exactly the question that I struggle with, with environmental philosophy, or that I really had to engage with thoroughly during my, my doctoral studies, is exactly this as well. Why, why do we want to protect it? And what is it that we're actually protecting? Um, and, and what values do we, do, 
you know, encourages us to protect those things. And I think um, there's, there's a few things. And, and one of the things that I like about environmental philosophy is it ways, it, it talks about animals as much as it talks about um, the environment, because there's often a thing of, okay, do we perhaps protect a few animals um, that might damage the environment or vice versa, do we protect the environment by killing a few animals? So there's that sort of bigger question, but then there's also specific questions about specific animals. So, so environmental philosophy includes things like environmental ethics, animal ethics, um, and I think those are interesting questions as well. So for example, in the Kruger, so since they stopped culling the elephants, one of the big problems has been that um, the elephants are incredibly destructive animals. And they're basically taking over the Kruger. There's a ton of them and there's, there's actually more than the capacity of the land. Which means that um, when I spoke to a ranger last year sometime, they said, well, the sad thing is in 10 or 15 years, the landscape of the Kruger is going to be different. It's, it's, it's going to be, it's not going to have any trees that's higher than a, um, you know, a meter and a half or so because the elephants just, just destroy the landscape. And then that has certain effects for other animals. So by not killing the elephants, we are actually also harming other species. So there becomes that question of um, who, which species do we take as more important? Um, whose voices do we listen to? Um, and, and it's not an easy, it's, there's no easy answers. There's no, I don't think there's, because at the end of the day, if we think about the Kruger as, as natural or as, as untouched as it might seem, it's actually an incredibly constructed and manufactured environment. There are people making sure that certain populations are in control. Um, even with some of the elephant populations, they use birth control to try and control the, um, you know, control the populations. Um, and, you know, so even though we'd like to think that it's this, this piece of land that is, that is left to its own devices, it really isn't. You know, it really it is a manufactured environment. As much as I'd like to say a mall is a manufactured environment, there are people working very hard to keep it looking a certain way. Um, so I think that's, that's one interesting question. Another one that you brought up is the idea of suffering and um, how we value suffering. So, you know, we'll often talk about the emaciated polar bear and shame, you know, like this polar bear doesn't have any more food because of global warming. But what about the seal that's the one getting eaten, <laughs> you know, or should we, should we stop suffering? And if we, if we have an ethical position that we want to stop suffering or reduce suffering, which is generally a utilitarian sort of um, approach is to try to reduce suffering or reduce pain as much as possible. The natural consequence of that is that we have to try to stop suffering in the wild as well, in the wilderness as well. And there's some, some people who actually um, try to argue for that, that we should stop the bookie from being eaten by the lion. And that always seems to me to be a strange position because aren't you then also, doesn't, won't the lion end up suffering because the lion's not eating? <laughs> So I think there's, there's a lot of things about um, what we think of as natural and what we think of as untouched by humans that are actually just not. I mean, it, it just these environments, even the most natural looking environments are constructed, they're made, they're made by humans, they're controlled by humans. Um, and, and yeah, I, I, I don't think there's really anything like a natural environment left. So... I'm curious when you talk about animal ethics, it's something we've discussed in a different uh, light before. We had a discussion with Dustin Crummett on vegetarianism and Mark is an, inf is, is an inf infamous vegetarian or a pescatarian. Uh, and we have this ongoing battle about it because I'm not. Um, but, but I'm curious about some other ethical cases that pop up 
specifically within environmentalist um, concerns. Okay, so one of them is this. So um, there is this phenomenon called uh, canned hunting, where you will take an animal uh, that is endangered, um, often endangered, so it'll be very valuable. Um, it'll be like a lion or a rhino, um, and they'll place it in a pen, and they'll uh, bring out often international hunters um, who are otherwise perhaps not professional hunters, but they always wanted to kill a lion or a tiger or whatever it is. And they put it in this pen um, and this hunter pays a lot of money to kill this animal um, that is endangered, right? So it kills a lion, kill, kills a tiger, kills a hyena, kills a, a cheetah, whatever it is, right? Um, and part of our intuition around this is, oh my God, that's, that's horrendous. That's, that's, that seems morally abominable. How could you do this to this animal? On the other hand, um, the effects of that are often very helpful for that animal's species. So because farmers are um, they, they, incentivized to have these animals on their farms, um, they then breed more of them. And suddenly an endangered animal um, is much more uh, abundant uh, in the environment, um, or at least maybe not in the environment, but at least in, in their farms. Um, so, so the environmentalist has gotten what they want in one sense, right? So they've managed to save that animal, but they've done it at the cost of, of canned hunting. So is it right or wrong? Yeah. I think that's a, that's a really important question. Um, and I think whether it's right or wrong would depend again on your ethical position and, and which perspective you take. Um, I think there are a few other examples of that as well. For example, you, in South Africa, you also get quite a lot of interaction with wildlife. So where um, lion cubs or elephants um, are, are trained to interact with, with tourists specifically and, and people, um, you get a nice little picture, you get to pet the lion, and then that lion just goes off and becomes a canned lion hunting um, lion. Or, or the elephant, obviously many elephants just live their lives out as, as sort of tame elephants, if there is, even is such a thing. So I think whether it's right or wrong, um, I think if we really think about it, there's not much difference from breeding a lion to shoot it than there is from breeding an, a, a cow to eat it. Um, you know, the question then becomes is, is it okay to use animals as instruments for our own gain? Um, so there's, there's a few questions in, in the, the question that you asked. The one is whether we should value an animal's life enough to not kill it unnecessarily. Um, I don't know if there's a huge harm in dying. Um, I think this is true of all species. I mean, if you die, you die and you cease to exist and there's not really much harm done to you. The harm that is done is perhaps the suffering leading up to death, um, is perhaps in a, in a human's case, the people that are left behind that mourn your death um, and that sort of thing. Um, whether the, the actual lion suffers harm from being shot, I, I don't know. It's probably a much better death than the cow walking up, you know, to be slaughtered, there's a lot more suffering in that process um, before it dies. So, so as far as, as animal deaths go, generally they shot, you know, they die pretty quickly. It's a pretty painless death if it's a, if it's a relatively experienced hunter. Um, and there's also the death is on such a small scale. So if you're also just talking sheer numbers, much fewer lions die from canned lion hunting than you know, cows die from being slaughtered for, for, for meat. So um, I think whether it's right or wrong would depend on your, um, on your ethical perspective. If you perhaps are a sort of duty theorist, a deontologist, then you think we have certain duties to, to 
reduce suffering or to not harm animals, then perhaps it would be wrong. Um, if you are a utilitarian and you're looking at sheer numbers and you're saying, well, yes, fine, this one line will die, but you know what, this farm employs 15 people who feed 100 members of their families and it brings tourism to the country, which is a big driver of our GDP, whatever, then you could perhaps make the utilitarian argument that the one elephant's life or the one lion's life is, is worth um, sort of the benefits that we get from that industry. So I think it would depend on your perspective and, and there's definitely competing perspectives there. And obviously, if you also think that an, an, an animal's sentience is important or its ability or its interest, like Peter Singer says, we have to consider their interests. They have interest in staying alive. They have interest in, in perhaps a reduced interest and not as, as much of an informed interest as, as humans have. But there's definitely an interest there that we want to take seriously. Um, so yeah, I think it would depend on your perspective, uh, but there's definitely a few approaches to it. And, and that's often one of the reasons a lot of these farmers use is they say, well, you know, they're either protecting the species or they're expanding the number of species. And that again goes back for me to what we hold as valuable, because often the reason we want to save certain species is because they're rare. It's the same as the example that was made earlier about the valuable piece of artwork. Why do we hold certain things in value? And it's often because they're rare because there's only one of them, because there's no way that they can be reproduced. Um, and I think that again links back to, well, if there's just a million lions lying around, then no one cares if one dies. The same as with cows, for example, no one really cares if another cow dies. But if you know, a species goes extinct, if the last rhino goes extinct, or if the Mona Lisa gets destroyed, we mourn that because we, we tend to place value on rarity. But again, is that an inherent value? Like Mark was saying earlier, there's not really anything in and of itself that gives it value, it's rather the value bestowed on it by, by us. Yeah, so I mean, a couple of thoughts come to mind. I mean, the one might be that people's objections to, um, let's say the killing of majestic animals. So if you think about the levels of outrage that people have when, when a rhino is killed by poachers or when an American kills Cecil the lion, I mean, those people are publicly shamed, you know, they sort of have to you know, hide out, um, you know, so their, labors, their neighbors don't lynch them, that kind of stuff. Um, but those same people doing their public shaming will say nothing about the, the mass killing of animals um, in slaughterhouses where they are killed in very extremely cruel conditions in comparison to, as you say, the sort of ethical hunters who are trying to kill an animal in one shot to reduce as much suffering as possible. So it seems like there's a, there's a vividness that's playing a kind of emotional role. We see the, you know, the sort of brash American hunter with, its, with their head on the, on the dead line and we go, that's that's abominable. Um, and you do that while you're eating your steak, you know, because you don't have to think about, um, you know, the, the sort of hundreds of thousands of cows being sort of tortured to death. Um, so there's this sort of hypocrisy. Um, the, here's the other thing, which is interesting is if you, if the person says, fine, okay, I don't care about the animal for its own sake. I care about it for rarity and lion striking is rare or, or, or rhinos are rare. And then the movers say, well, don't worry. What we'll do is we'll have these rhino breeding programs. Um, and we'll fund it by selling hunting licenses. And so I gather that's, that's what happens with certain animals is that basically their numbers were kind of dwindling until a market was created where people who sort of want their pelts or want their heads on walls would then pay for hunting license and pay over, over and above the odds. And that incentivized farmers to then breed that animal. So you can then remove the rarity. You can say, well, don't worry, uh, rhinos won't be rare in 50 years because we can just make lots of them uh, if you allow us to hunt them to death. So that might be you know, a move that could be made. Here's the, the other one, which is we sort of talk about 
you know, that kind of way of thinking about animals where you're using them as a means to an end, which is the end of, you know, having more of the species and you're not treating that animal as good in and of itself. Um, and I wonder what our view would be about, let's say, rare types of humans. So um, we think about a place like Papua New Guinea, you've got all these very small tribes which speak unique languages. Often the tribes are, let's say, 30 people. Um, and let's say you were told that one of those tribes was on the verge of extinction. They were being hunted by a neighboring tribe. Um, and there would be a way to, to, to protect them, which would be um, you let some rich Americans uh, eat their young. Um, assume that there's sort of a, enough people who have some kind of interest in the willing to pay huge amounts of money. And you could use that money then to protect the community itself, not the individuals in the community, but the community would have the longevity. Would we feel comfortable with such a situation? We say, well, you can use, um, you know, the, the newborn infants of the Papua New Guineans, um, you know, for the American stew, and the money will then be used to preserve these guys and their culture will persist for another, you know, a thousand years if we do this. Um, because that seems to be some of the approaches that are about to animals. Yeah. I think something that, that your question highlights is how bad humans are at making moral decisions. Um, I think generally, if, if, you, if you think about how humans make moral decisions, um, they often aren't very rational about it. And, and it often is driven by, by things like emotional sentiment and, and not necessarily about taking their argument or taking their position to the logical conclusion. Um, so one thing that I found um, is very useful for me as an environmental philosopher is to look at environmental psychology, um, because environmental psychology helps us to understand how human beings make decisions. And often what we find is that even, even though we know what the moral decision or the correct decision is to make, it's often very difficult because we find ourselves in systems that, that make it very difficult to make those, those decisions. And often... So I'll give you a silly example. I mean, most of us know that it's good to recycle, right? We've been told recycling's good. But if recycling, if I can't just put my recycling outside my door and I have to actually drive and go and drop it off, I'll very likely not recycle because that little bit of effort um, just is too much for me. I might not have the time. I might, um, you know, we might know that it's good to be a vegan, but vegan food's just too expensive and I can't afford to be a vegan or whatever the case might be. Um, and so what we often find is that our moral positions don't necessarily correspond with our moral behavior. Um, so we often have moral positions that, that we just don't enforce. Um, and I think the, the kind of example that you give about the Papua New Guineans is, is an example of that, is we would be very quick to say, well, maybe if we just breed a few animals, um, you know, some of them will get killed in lion hunting, eh, you know, it's not the end of the world, but we wouldn't want to do that with humans. That for me is just another illustration about how our moral decision-making or our moral reasoning is often very flawed. Um, because then, they, or, or maybe not flawed, but that our assumptions aren't unpacked. Because our assumption, we would have to ask, well, what's the difference between the Papua New Guinean and the lion or, or you know, whatever animal we're breeding? Um, is there a difference? Why do we value humans as more important than um than animals um is it just simply because it is so easy for us to just kill them or to dominate them in some way so i think there's a lot of things about our moral reasoning that needs unpacking when we think about the environment and like you said there's often these these very you know like oh no people are hunting cecil the lion while eating our steak um you know and and I think this is just a reality about human beings. We're actually incredibly terrible moral decision makers. 
um, and our reasoning is incredibly flawed. And then when we do take it to its logical extension, it doesn't work. And then when we're kind of shocked that it doesn't work. But I think that's where philosophers come in. And that's hopefully the job of, of philosophers is to try, you know, tease things out to its logical conclusion and see whether where there are cases work in all cases. And if it doesn't, why, why or why not? Um, and what are our assumptions and to unpack our assumptions? Because if we're arguing from emotion, I'm not saying that it's always bad to argue from emotion. That's fine. If you want to argue from emotion or if you want to protect an animal just because it's cute, that's also okay. But at least back it up with an argument, right? And, or try establish why a cute animal, why cuteness is a value that's worth protecting as opposed to not or whatever, you know? So I think that's what I've realized about moral decision-making when it comes to the environment, that it's often driven by emotion and, and people just, like the fracking is another example. People are often very upset about the fracking. Um, when one, they don't always understand necessarily what fracking is properly. And then they're just driven by some sort of sentiment that it's bad to engage with the environment. But we do that anyway. I mean, if you drive through the hills of England, you'll see these huge, massive wind turbines um, for, the, for the wind electricity. And, you know, just it's, it's just what humans do. We interact with the environment and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. And, you know, and, and why do we get so upset about it? I, I, I think that hasn't been, well, people don't, know how to make good moral decisions or if they do they don't really know the reasons why they do it so i wonder whether a lot of this kind of debate uh, from the environmentalist side um, is it kind of rests on certain assumptions okay so one of those assumptions might be um, global warming is bad okay and there are certain metrics which scientists have agreed on which correlates with uh, worse global warming or global warming getting better. So one of those uh, metrics would be uh, the parts per million carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And so we've developed scales of your carbon footprint, for example. Um, and so we say that uh, when you see that big wind turbine, that wind turbine has a much lower carbon footprint than a coal mine, for example. Um, and so the environmentalist is going to say, we like, we like the wind turbine or we like the solar panels because they have a lower carbon footprint and they're renewable energy um, compared with um, coal-based energy. What if that's the argument used? One of the reasons we're so concerned about carbon is because at some point, if, we, if the Earth's atmosphere heats up too much too quickly, we won't be able to adapt and as a species we along with probably many other species would die out um but many other species would probably thrive in situations like that so again i think a lot of the worry about global warming goes back towards the survival of the human race and whether it's it's we will be able to survive because we often talk about the two degrees and if the, you know earth warms for two degrees it's going to become very hard for human beings to survive but really like why is it that important to protect the human race like one, warming, global warming is a natural phenomenon in the sense that the, the earth goes through periods of warmth and periods of cold. Like it's, it's well documented that we've had several different periods, like ice periods and I guess the opposite of ice periods, warm periods, right? This is something that happens naturally. It just tends to happen over much longer periods of time. So what we're finding now is that global warming, because it's anthropogenically, um, motivated because it's humans that bring it about um, it's just happening very quickly and as a species we don't have a, a chance to adapt to it so we'll very likely just end up dying out 
I don't really think that's the worst possible thing that can happen. I mean, <laughs> perhaps this is an unpopular view, but I mean, we're bound to die out at some point. And if we want to, you know, destroy the place where we live, you know, kind of serves us right. And yeah, sure, other species will die out, but very likely other species will thrive and more species would come into existence that are able to withstand those kinds of atmospheres. Um, so again, I think people worrying about global warming just comes back to them really wanting to save themselves, um, save the human race, because there's, again, a sentimentality about humanity that perhaps I think is perhaps unfounded. Um, I mean, we're just a species like any other. I want to touch on something else that you, that you talked about, which is we're, we're very bad at making moral decisions and that we tend to be clouded by emotion. And, and you talked a little bit about... Um, our assumptions about how to make the world a better place. So, for example, recycling and so-called sort of renewable energy. So I'll tell you two stories. One is a friend of mine's a, a green architect, um, and so he would consult um, people who wanted to build buildings or sort of improve an existing building to make them more energy efficient. And the first question we always get asked is, well, can, we, can you stick some wind turbines um, on top of our building? And he said, yeah, I can do that. Um, but I'm going to be honest with you, it, it, it really does very little. Um, you know, the way your building's located, you're not going to get much wind. It produces a minuscule amount, amount of energy. Um, the best way, if you're interested in being more green, is that you can get insulation for your piping. And so you'll get less heat sort of escaping. Um, and it'll save you a lot of money and, you know, it really is good for the environment and it's, it's quite cheap as well. It's a lot cheaper than getting these wind turbines on top of your building. And the guy said, cool, 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 but people aren't <laughs> going to know that we did that. Um, so they can see the big wind turbine on top of the building and then they'll know that we're a green building and no one can see that our pipes have been insulated. So you've got the sense of it's not actually about doing good, it's about looking good. And, and then the other one is with what you mentioned about the difficulty of recycling. So um, especially in Europe, you will have like six different bins. So there's a bin for old batteries, there's a bin for paper, there's a bin for like um, stuff for composting, there's one for metal. Um, it turns out that basically um, a lot of recycling is actively bad for the environment. They reckon that um, recycling tin cans is a good idea, reusing glass bottles is a good idea. The rest of it is basically a bad idea. Um, it, it, uh, it requires lots of sorting. Most of the stuff kind of winds up in a, in a garbage heap anyway. Uh, what you end up doing is people kind of wasting their time. Instead of doing the stuff that they're actually good at, they, you, you make them garbage sorters uh, in their own homes for, for no good effect. Um, that you wind up actually causing big environmental damage specifically from something like plastic recycling. So one of the reasons why you have turtles with um, straws up their noses, another kind of iconic image, is... Um, not because plastics are getting thrown in dumps in, you know, in non-coastal regions. Actually, that stuff is, is staying underground and those dumps get turned into sort of parks and things like that down the line. What it is is that the stuff was being shipped to China um, for reuse. So the idea was, okay, well, you know, recycling just intrinsically sounds like such a bad idea. We can take this garbage and we can turn it into a treasure and this sounds wonderful. But actually, um, it has some limited use. And so the Americans were sort of sending off Garbage to China, and at some point it became uneconomical to do so. And so instead of actually delivering to China, guys in the boats will just dump it in the ocean. Um, and that's why you have all the plastics in the ocean. So plastic recycling has done all this environmental damage. But what I find interesting is that when I tell this to people who are avid recyclers, um, they feel the sense of, but it feels so good to do all this work. I feel like I'm doing something. There's something tangible in sorting through all the garbage and because it's so hard it makes me think that i'm doing the right thing and i'm so troubled to hear you say that this is all for nothing 
And I kind of think I'm going to do it anyway. And I'm going to do it with my kids because I feel like it inculcates some kind of virtue, even if it has zero consequences or actively bad consequences. Um, and that's kind of an amazing phenomenon for me. Yeah, so that's, that is the truth, right? And I think something that underlies your two examples is, is this idea of the system we find ourselves in, right? Um, and this is often what makes it so difficult to be a green person if there is really anything like what it's like to be a green person or to be completely green. Um, it's generally because life was already set up through two and a half, you know, millennia of, you know, modernization or industrialization, whatever, to be the way it is now. Um, so for me, standing in my house trying to do environmental good is, is very difficult because I'm, I'm in a system that's not a very environmentally friendly system. I mean, there's nothing I can do about ships, you know, dumping things in the ocean. There really isn't. And what we find is that often these things that we get told we're supposed to do, like the whole straw phenomenon, right? Everyone's using paper straws, which is probably the stupidest kind of straw ever because two sips into your cold drink, it's just mush. So like, I don't know who came up with that great idea, but it actually makes no difference because the big, the big problems in the environment is actually not you and me as, as individual citizens, you know, using certain amounts of plastic or not. The problem really is big industries. It's, it's big, you know, it's the big picture. It's not you and me. Um, we make very, very, very little change. And even if, if I had to make my life incredibly difficult and try to change everything about how I am to be more green, it's really won't. And even if a million of us tried to do that, it really won't make a big difference because we still can't offset um, the damages caused by bigger industries. And then again, like you said, there's certain systems that we're caught up in. Um, I know for a very silly example, I live in a, in a suburb where you're supposed to sort through your um, recycling and then you put all your recycling in the clear bag and, and your rubbish in a, in a black bag. But I live in a complex in the suburb. And we just, for some reason in the complex, just don't get a clear bag. We just don't. So we're in the suburb where they do their active recycling, wherever that ends up going, I'm not sure. But you know, so just the fact that I live literally next door to people who do get the clear bag, I don't get the clear bag. So my recycling ends up just going in the dustbin and I kind of just end up hoping that the, the recycling guys end up picking it up and doing my recycling for me. Whether that's any good or not, I don't know, right? So I think there's, there's this, also this thing of a system, you know? So, I mean, I need to get to work. How do I get to work? I get in my car and I go to work. I could walk to work but that would be incredibly inefficient and it would take me five hours, you know? So the fact that we're caught up in certain systems, you know, our country doesn't have a very good public transport. So I can't, public transport in South Africa is not an option where it might be in certain European countries. So if you're caught up in a certain system, it becomes very difficult to change that. And then I think what we try to do is we try and make ourselves feel better. We try and make ourselves feel like little moral warriors that we've recycled our little, you know, tin can, but actually we're really not making much of a difference because what we should probably be putting our energy into is, I don't know, trying to change big industries that, you know, really harm the environment. But again, who has the time for that? Who has the, you know, we're all trying to survive on our own. So I think what it ends up being and the reason people like to recycle is because it's small victories and they can celebrate the small moral victories, um, even if they're, they're irrational, you know, and I think that's just human nature. And again, it goes back to psychology is, how do we make these decisions? And, and often we're not very good at making them, those decisions. 
um, and it's much easier to walk into Woolworths and you know buy my little piece of steak all nicely wrapped um, and go home and eat it. But if I see a hunter hunting an actual animal, that seems so horrific to me because I didn't. I'm seeing the dead animal and when the steak is on my plate, I'm not seeing the dead animal, you know? So there's, there's definitely inconsistencies when it comes to environmental decision-making, probably other kinds of decision-making as well, but definitely environmental issues. So this has been a very surprising episode. Uh, you've taken positions I would never have expected an environmental <laughs> philosopher to take, uh, an environmental anything to take. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so you take the position that it's not clear what nature is, uh, it, like, it, and, and if there is something natural, it could include like a parking lot, um, and a mall, a uh, car. Um, you also take the position that, um, uh, that canned hunting isn't clearly bad. Uh, it would depend on, on your ethical system, but there really are reasons to think that it's not that much worse than many other things that we do, like eating steak, um, those could be even worse. Um, and, and you take the position that global warming, well, yeah, I mean, it's not clear that it's, it's bad for people. Sure. That's clear, but it's not clear that it's bad for uh, the environment per se, because although a bunch of, of species will die out, another bunch of species will thrive. Um, and you take a similar position with cities like the built environment. I, I mean, it's very, very interesting. Um, Thank you very much for joining us. And uh, it was fantastic hosting you. Um, and uh, yeah, plenty to think about. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, I guess, I guess my, that when you put it that way, um, you're right. That perhaps my positions aren't as obvious <laughs> as, as I would think they are. I've just spent many years thinking about these things and, and come to these for what me, it seems to me to be logical conclusions. I, I, I don't know if they are, but I'm glad that I surprised you. Um, I always think that's the job of philosophy is to leave you somewhat unsettled. I always say that if a student leaves my class feeling settled, I haven't done my job. So if you're feeling slightly unsettled and slightly unsure, then I've done my job as a philosopher. <laughs> I think that's right. I think that's exactly what we try and cultivate on the show is, you know, we have deeply held intuitions about various things and philosophers kind of, get up inside that and they sort of ask us to wrestle with the internal contradictions. Um, and as you say, we, we're often very good at asking questions and maybe providing some very uncomfortable answers. Um, and that's part of the fun, um, you know, to sort of think about these things in a more sophisticated manner. Um, and uh, yeah, so really it has been an absolute pleasure having you on board.